Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 128. Can the Packers keep their playoff hopes alive, getting a road win against a division rival in primetime on New Year's Eve, taking on a fifth-round rookie quarterback, making his first career start? Please, Joe Barry, let's put some beg into it. Please, please, please have a normal performance from your defense on Sunday night. The spread is down to one. If the Packers win, the playoff odds go way up. If they lose, they are down in the Lloyd Christmas zone of 1%. Essentially, Sunday night is a playoff game. We'll talk about the Jair Alexander drama, drama, drama at 1265 as he got a one-game suspension for his antics in Carolina. We'll break that down as well as the rest of the NFL. Make some picks there. We'll talk about the Badger Bowl game. New Year's Day game. Can't say I saw that coming when they were sitting at 500. They take on LSU. Could get a pretty noteworthy win if they can get it on New Year's Day. 10-point underdogs. We'll talk about the college football playoff. And the Bucks get a win on Wednesday. Not that big of a deal. Nice win against Brooklyn on the road. They're in Cleveland tonight. More importantly in the Bucks landscape, though, Herb Cole passed away, 88 years old, an icon for the Wisconsin sports scene, the Bucks scene, as well as the Brewers a little bit too. We'll talk about all that as well. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! Morgan a smash up the middle! He looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a tentacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. First things first, yes, I am under the weather. I don't know if you can tell that or not. Radio people always wonder when we go on the air if we've got the sniffles, if we're a little bit under the weather. Can you hear? Can you understand if I talk like this? Does anybody want to hear me talk like this for 45 straight minutes? I guess we're going to find out in episode 128. Episode 128 is where we find out what the threshold is for a nasally podcast. Well, my wife and I have been battling through something, some kind of crap. She works in healthcare, so she has to test for COVID basically every day. She can't go to work with it. It's not that, but it is similar. She was congested, had a cough for a long time, and then, of course, of course... I had staved it off, even though living in the same airspace, basically, I thought for sure I would get it, and then I went weeks not getting it. On Monday, so that would have been Christmas Day, nothing says happy <laughs> happy holidays, Merry Christmas to your significant other, to your wife, like bragging about how great your immune system is. It must have been when we were at my mom's house on Sunday, I was saying, well, it looks like somebody's got a superior immune system. I've been able to fight it off this entire time. What happened 24 hours later? So we are both battling through it, hopefully getting toward the tail end of it here. I am all hopped up on cold medication and emergency. I'm doing lines of emergency like it was the, what's the, Tony Montana? 
just burying my head in orange emergency. I'm hopped up on that and cold meds today. I am light as a feather. I actually feel great right now. I'm floating right now, baby. We'll see how the rest of this podcast goes. Let's start with the Packers. I'm going to play you this just right out of the gate. When I saw that it was this day in history, I could not play this quickly enough on the B93 Morning Show today. There are so many great calls in the Wayne Larravee, Larry McCarran era of the Packer Radio Network. We play one of them in the intro to this podcast where it's the Super Bowl dagger. There is your championship dagger. This might be 1B for me then in my favorite call list. Not only because it's a great Packer moment and it's a Packer-Bear game and it rips the hearts out of Bears fans... This is maybe my favorite Larry McCarron trampling all over Wayne Larravee in a seminal moment in Packer Radio Network history. Today in history, 10 years ago, Packers and Bears at Soldier Field, the de facto NFC North Championship game. Rodgers back from injury, taking on Jay Cutler, and he's got Randall Cobb. Well, this is it, Rock. The season right here on this fourth down play. How many times have we said that on this drive? Rodgers in the shotgun, three receivers left, one to the right. Packers need at least seven yards to move the chains. Rodgers gets the snap. Blitz is on. Rodgers scrambles He's left, winds up. He's got Cobb at the 10 to the 5 yes! to the end zone. Touchdown and a dagger. Oh, my goodness. An NFC North Division championship dagger of 47 yards. The Larry McCarran-gasm, the McCarran-gasm, McCarran-gasm, McCarran-gasm. That was just peak Larry. And how about the ballsy dagger call from Wayne Larravee? We used to do B93, where I work, and then WHBL, which is right behind me. The AM station in the building, the heritage station in this building, has been around since like the 30s. We used to do a crossover post-Packer game day where we would do about a 10-minute segment with Larry McCarron for many years. We did that with Mason Crosby for a while. And we did it with Wayne Larravee for a year or two. And I don't know if I asked him on the air or when we were doing some promo for his dagger wear. He actually had There Is Your Dagger. He had, like, like fan gear you could buy. You could buy T-shirts. I've got a hoodie sitting in my trunk somewhere. I don't know if it's still out there or if you can still buy these things. He was doing a promotional stop in Sheboygan that we were promoting to sell that gear. That merch. And we were having a cocktail afterwards. And I think I asked him, have you ever had a dagger call go south? Because doing play-by-play on a much smaller scale, like infinitesimally small scale compared to what he does. You always worry about saying a game is wrapped up or you are hinting that it's over and then it's not. And then people shove that back in your face. Have you ever had a dagger call go wrong? And he said he had not. He had not had one turn on him in his entire career. And he's been doing the dagger call even back to, I think, when he was doing play-by-play for the Chiefs, when he was doing play-by-play for the Bears. That's his signature. That is his signature call when the game, when he thinks the game is over. He said he's never had it go south. Keep in mind in that game, they go for two. Right? I think they go for two. Hold on. Let me just make sure I know what the score is here. They go for two. Okay, so they're down. What is it? They're up six points. They're up five points. They went for two and didn't get it. There's 40 seconds left and two timeouts for the Bears, and they were okay. I mean, I know we made fun of Jay Cutler a lot. Same old Jay and the whole Charles Woodson clip. That team wasn't horrible in the Jay Cutler, Lovey Smith era. I'm sure there's plenty of Bears fans out there that long for those days where they were winning 8 to 10 games a year and were vying for division titles and were in the NFC Championship game losing to the Packers. That wasn't a terrible era for them. 40 seconds left, two timeouts, and that Packer defense, which was not good then and as, as it is not good now, 10 years later, not much has changed. Consistency. 
That's a pretty tenuous dagger call where a touchdown gets the Bears the win at the end, and they would have had time to do it. Packer defense got to stop. I would think, ooh, that, that might have been a tight one. That was 10 years ago today in Packer history as they won the NFC North, and then nothing bad happened. Was it Kaepernick? I think it was Kaepernick. I think it was Kaepernick part two after that. That was the game at Lambeau that was sub-zero or zero degrees. Remember they had to sell, I think a bunch of sponsors had to buy five to 10,000 tickets for that wild card game. Otherwise, it was going to be blacked out. We have never even considered blackout restrictions in Green Bay for forever because of the way that season went with the Rodgers injury, and it must have been, it wasn't Hundley. What was the combo they went with that year? Seneca Wallace and Scott Tolzien, and then they eventually brought back Matt Flynn, right? And that kept them in it until those final games. Just because of the way the season went, and then you had those terrible temperatures and a pretty good Niners team, they had difficulty selling tickets to the point where a bunch of sponsors had to step up and had to purchase, I want to say, almost 10,000 tickets to make sure that those games would not be blacked out locally. That was a close game that they lost in the fourth quarter, another of those kind of games in the playoffs in the Aaron Rodgers era. That throw to Cobb, though, he's got Randall Cobb. It almost looks like he says Brandon Cobb. He's got Brandon Cobb. It would be perfectly McCarran to have the wrong first name there as well. One of my favorite radio calls ever, 10 years ago today. Let's get you set for this weekend. Packers, Vikings, the Jordan Love era. Can this team stay in the playoff chase? We'll begin, though, with Jair. I want to talk about the Jair situation, and then I want to talk about Jair and how it relates to Joe Barry and how fans are receiving this. Jair got a suspension. We talked about this on the podcast on Tuesday. It must have been the day after Christmas. I mentioned at the at the end of that podcast or at the end of that Packer conversation, just talking about what happened where Jair is from Carolina. He was not a team captain. He took it upon himself to name himself essentially a team captain and go out there for the coin toss. And then he was the guy who wanted to call the coin toss or make the decision after the coin toss. He did that. He almost blew it. Remember, we talked about how things are different now in the NFL where it's not whether or not you're saying we want to kick or receive and then the opposite happens. What you're saying is I want to make a choice now or I want to make a choice at half. When Jair said, I want the defense on the field, that could have been interpreted as saying we want to kick the ball because we want the defense on the field. So you have made the choice now to put your defense on the field and to kick the ball away. That means the other team then has their choice to begin the second half, and clearly Carolina would take the ball twice then. They would receive to begin the game and receive in the second half. Luckily, I guess Matt LaFleur, it sounds like, had a conversation with the officials that if they won the coin toss, that's what they wanted to do, which as a side note, why don't we just do that? Why are we sending six guys out to the middle of the field, and some of them may not even know what the rules are or what's going on, Why can't each coach just go to the head official who's going to flip the coin and say, if we win the toss, here's what we want to do. I don't know that we need this to be a variable. You know what I mean? I don't know that we need this. Remember back in the day, too, was it a Thanksgiving Day game where Jerome Bettis called tails and it was tails, and then the official said, oh, I thought you said heads, and clearly he said tails, and they screwed that up. I don't know that we need this many X factors in a coin toss. If that's happening anyway, just let that be the way it's done. Hey, if we win the toss, this is what we want to do. Or if we win the toss, here's what we want to do. Luckily, LaFleur had discussed that with the lead official. So the official then said to Jair, do you mean you want to defer? And then Jair, when he was talking to reporters postgame, said, and I said, yeah, it's pretty obvious what I what I wanted to do when I said the defense is on the field. Clearly, Jair in that postgame discussion, too, with the reporters still didn't quite understand the rule. He just didn't get it. And I'm not sure that I would if I were in his position. Or you wouldn't be studying about it. I don't know. If I were a player and I was 24 years old or 25 years old and I wasn't paying that close of attention to those rule changes or I grew up on Madden, which I did, too, 
I don't know that I would know exactly what to say in that situation if I hadn't been prepped for it. He didn't think it was that big of a deal, but they almost lost a possession. They almost lost a possession in a game where they only won by three points. That could have been a big mistake on Jair's part. And I think I said at the end of the podcast on Tuesday something to the effect of, you really can't have this happen. Or maybe I said, I don't think Jair Alexander respects Matt LaFleur, which clearly he does not. Or, or at least he doesn't respect Joe Barry, and maybe by some connection there, by them keeping Joe Barry on, maybe that has led to now some players on that defense, or Jair specifically, not really trusting or trusting in Matt LaFleur now either. You had to do something. You had to do something. Now, based on the one-game suspension, Packer fans have been divided, from what I can tell, into two camps. Camp number one is saying... We need to win these games. These are big games. If you win these two games, in all likelihood, you are going to get into the playoffs in a rebuild year with a quarterback in his first year as a starter, and this would be the great culmination of what has been a surprisingly successful season. We need these games. Our defense is bad. You need to have your best cornerback out there. You're facing Justin Jefferson. Couldn't we have done this differently? Could we have done something after the year? Could we have done just a fine? Would a fine have sufficed here? A $25,000 fine. And then make sure you have your best corner on the field taking on Justin Jefferson on Sunday. That's one side of Packer fandom. The other side of Packer fandom that I belong to, and look, I don't know which side is right or wrong here. I'm just telling you what my feelings are, and I think I kind of hinted at that on Tuesday's podcast. My feeling was you had to do something. When the news came down that they suspended him, I thought that's probably a good thing to do. You just can't have players, especially star players, going out there on their own terms and naming themselves captains, then almost screwing things up and giving up possessions. You cannot have that. And I think Mike Singletary, 20 years ago, said it better than I can. As soon as they released the suspension and said that he was suspended one game for conduct detrimental to the team, this is the first thing that popped into my head. This could be Mike Singletary. I think he was talking about Vernon Davis when he was the head coach of the 49ers. I think he was referencing the tight end, Vernon Davis. This could just as easily be a clip, though, of this exact scenario with Jair Alexander. I will not tolerate um, players that think it's about them when it's about the team. And um, we cannot make we cannot make decisions that cost the team and then come off the sideline and it's nonchalant. No. You know what? I, I, th this is how I believe, okay? I'm from the old school. I believe this. I would rather play with 10 people and, and just get penalized all the way until we got to do something else rather than play with 11 when I know that right now that person is not sold out to be a part of this team. It is more about them than it is about the team. I cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. One of the all-time rants right there. Put it up there with Jim Mora on the Mount Rushmore of the playoffs and put it up there with Denny Green. They are who we thought they were. Guys like that. I think that perfectly encapsulates how I feel about the Jair Alexander situation. Look, Jair is a top-tier player, I think. Although his grades have gone down every year. The shoulder injury two years ago against San Francisco seems to have set his career sideways a bit. Jair, remember when he was fully healthy, probably the pinnacle of his career to this point, not just the two all-pro selections, but that game against Tampa, that NFC Championship game where he had multiple picks, he was all over the field tackling. Remember how good of a tackler he was early in his career where he would come after running backs full throttle and just light guys up like he was a middle linebacker? The shoulder injury 
has taken some of that oomph out of his game where he looks hesitant to tackle guys now or to mix it up and things like that. I think because of where his shoulder pain is at or maybe fear of re-injuring that shoulder. He's a cocky player, though, and when he's on top of his game, he is the best corner on this team. But that clip to me was the first thing I thought of when they levied this suspension. I thought, yeah, they had to do something, That's and that's where I fall. And again, I don't know which side is right there. We'll know Monday, probably based on how this game goes. If Justin Jefferson goes off for 200 yards and two touchdowns on Sunday, and that's the difference in a win or loss, and that is what eventually cripples Packer playoff hopes, then maybe Camp A that's saying, well, could we have just fined him? Could we have done something else? Maybe they're right. If they get through this game and they're okay and they get the win and they're still in the playoff chase and you survive the one-game suspension, then maybe Camp B is correct. This is a culmination, though. We can all agree on that, right? If this was just a one-off, if this was one thing that happened with Jair and the first time we had ever seen him act out of character like this, or act in character, I guess, in his case, if this was the first time we'd ever seen anything like this, I don't think they would have suspended him. I think it would have been a fine. It would have been some behind-closed-doors matter that they would have resolved on their own. This is the culmination of a lot of stuff. Jair all year has been kind of odd in post-game press conferences and pre-game press conferences. The one that sticks out to me, we played the clip of it, I don't even know when it was, middle of the year or maybe early in the year, where he just said, I don't know, to every question. Well, it's a good question. I don't know. So he kind of has had that attitude my guess is, without getting inside of his brain, my guess is that Jair does not like the Joe Barry defense, does not like the scheme. He said several times when he's been asked about how bad the defense has been, even coming out of the matchup against Carolina, they said, is it concerning giving up 30 points to a team that can barely score two touchdowns? And he seemed to say in all earnestness, yes, it is concerning. And then he kind of said, but we can all we can do is run the plays that are called. I would say Jair is no longer bought into the Joe Barry defense. That has led to him acting out, and it leads down the road to maybe a bit of turmoil between him and Matt LaFleur, then culminates with what happened in Carolina. And Matt LaFleur had to do something. He had to do something. Now, let's connect this to Joe Barry, because another number one take you're hearing is you're holding Jair accountable, fine. If you want to hold Jair accountable for his conduct, then fine. Then you suspend him for a game. But let's not do that and then not hold Joe Barry accountable for what he has done with his defense and how bad it has looked. We need accountability across the board. That was a take I saw a lot of, of, boy, Jair gets suspended and yet Joe Barry's going to call plays on Sunday. I would point out there is a nuanced difference here. Jair got suspended for something he did. I know it was on the field, but kind of technically off the field. Joe Barry's on-field performance is what is under the microscope. Jair got suspended for cheating on the test. He didn't get suspended for failing the test the way Joe Barry has. Joe Barry has taken the test. He is on the up and up. He's done it on his own, and he's failing. It's two different things. You suspend somebody or put them in in in-school suspension for cheating on a test or cheating off of someone on a test, not just for poor performance. I will say this, though. I think Matt LaFleur does walk a very fine line right now because, like Jair... And Devondre Campbell's been somewhat outspoken about this, and Devondre Campbell's wife has been on on Twitter as well. The veterans on this defense do not seem like they believe in this Joe Barry defense anymore. It seems like they're fed up. And if you start to hold players accountable and you don't hold coaches accountable, then you're going to lose the locker room there too. I know the feeling was we had to do something with Jair or we'll lose the locker room. You've got to be very careful. He's walking a, what was that tightrope? What's Who are the famous tightrope family? There was a whole documentary on them. I forget their names. That's what Matt LaFleur is doing right now, though. He's walking the tightrope on the Empire State Building. 
in terms of holding this locker room together. I need to do something to discipline Jair Alexander so it sends a message to the other players that you can't get away with anything, you can't do whatever you want. But the players may then say what some of the fans are saying. Well, this defense has been terrible. The calls have been terrible. Communication has been terrible. You're blaming us, but you're not going to blame the guy, the architect of this defense. That's the line LaFleur is walking. I would just say that the idea of or the reason for suspending Jair is a little different than what you would fire Joe Barry for or suspend. You're not going to suspend a coach, but if you were to fire Joe Barry, it's for kind of different reasons than Jair. But I can certainly understand that sentiment, and I certainly believe that there have to be players, especially defensive players, veteran defensive players in that locker room that are saying Jair got suspended for that, and meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, our defensive coordinator who's just playing tic-tac-toe, who's got a dartboard with defensive play calls on it, and we're getting burned week in, week out, and we're getting blamed for his bad calls. I can see where that could lead to a bit of rumbling as well. But I get it. I understand that whole fan perspective of we're suspending Jair but not doing anything with Joe Barry. Okay. That was big news in Green Bay this week. Injury-wise, no Devondre Campbell at practice. Who knows if he'll play? No Dontavian Wicks. That could be a loss. It does sound like they're going to get Jaden Reed back. He's been battling that chest injury. He had the near concussion as well a few weeks ago, but it does sound like Jaden Reed is going to be back. Offensively, I feel okay. Now, you go back to what I would argue is the low point this year. At the end of the three-game losing streak, the run of games against Vegas and then going to Denver and then the 24-10 loss at home to the Vikings where Kirk Cousins got injured. And this rookie quarterback who's starting on Sunday, I'm pretty sure he got into the game after that. That 24-10 loss at home to me is the low point. Then you started to come back with the win against the Chargers, got your three-game winning streak, got into playoff contention, then tripped over yourselves in two winnable games before winning against Carolina, and you still have a puncher's chance now as you enter the second-to-last game of the year. The offense was bad in that game against Minnesota at Lambeau Field. That feels like a while ago, and they've made a lot of steps forward, and the progression has been good. I feel comfortable. Now we'll see how I, how smart I look on Tuesday. I feel comfortable that this offense in Minnesota – even with the still talented Viking defense and that stupid horn that they play on every third down or whatever it is, I feel comfortable that the Packer offense is going to be able to get 20-plus points in this game, especially with a resurgent Aaron Jones. He is not on a pitch count anymore. We saw that against Carolina. However many touches he had, 23 or 24 touches and 135 yards. That's a different component than they had in that initial matchup at Lambeau Field five or six weeks ago or seven weeks ago. You've got that added dynamic now offensively. Everybody's gotten better since then. Jordan Love has looked much better. The wide receivers and tight ends have looked much better. It does sound like Luke Musgraves is an outside chance to maybe play on Sunday. They said on, or LaFleur said on Thursday that he's getting a chance to practice, but they want to make sure that he's 100%. They're not going to throw him out there if he can't be Luke. If Luke can't be Luke. What an added punch that would be, though. We talked about that on Tuesday's podcast. Imagine now that we've seen Tucker Craft develop. Imagine how this is going to look when you get these wide receivers healthy and you get Musgrave and Tucker Craft now working in tandem as pass-catching threats out there. Maybe an outside chance of seeing that on Sunday. I do feel comfortable that this offense will be able to score enough points to win. The question is, can Joe Barry's defense do anything? Has he lost the locker room completely? Is there any way they can hold this Viking team under 20 points? Keep them in that 17 to 20-point range. Give yourself a chance to win a 24-20 or whatever, a 23-20 kind of game. The Vikings do announce their starting quarterback is going to be the rookie. It's not going to be Nick Mullins. They are going to start fifth-round draft pick Jaron Hall, who did see some action in that game at Lambeau Field however many weeks ago. 
when Cousins went down. They were able to contain him then, but certainly it's going to be a different thing now in this game where that in that instance he's coming into the middle of a game where he didn't get a lot of prep during the week. This week, Jaron Hall knows he's going to be the guy. They're going to develop a game plan for him. He's got Justin Jefferson back. It'll be much different than the Jaron Hall that we saw for however many drives it was, three or four drives or probably three drives in that game at Lambeau Field. I said on Tuesday, and I echo it now, I don't know that it even matters. You could start Nick Mullins. With the way this defense is playing right now, unless you see some radical leap at the beginning of this game in terms of a different scheme or a different level of aggressiveness, with the way they have looked in the last three games against the Giants, Buccaneers, and the Panthers on Christmas Eve, I don't know that it matters if it's Nick Mullins. I don't know that it matters if it's Jaron Hall or if it's Uncle Rico or whatever. It feels like any quarterback with any amount of talent on that offense, and they have talent. Their running game is not awful. Of course, you've got Justin Jefferson. You do dodge a bullet with TJ Hawkinson. Uh, You don't want to wish an ACL injury on anybody. He is not going to play with a pretty serious knee injury. Addison, it sounds like maybe will not be out there on Sunday either, but they have other weapons beyond that, and Jefferson is arguably the best wide receiver in football or a top three wide receiver in football right now. That's a pretty big weapon to have. With the way this defense has looked, I don't know that it matters what the starting quarterback is. We saw in the last three weeks, these guys are wide open. You've got wide receivers running two or three yards open, nobody around him in space, plenty of time to throw. Any level of competent NFL quarterback, which you assume Jaron Hall is if he makes this roster, if he was valuable enough to waste a draft pick on or to use a draft pick on, you assume he can make throws to wide open guys 10 yards down the field. Hopefully this defense is able to adjust and come together in the wake of the Jair drama and whether or not you have Devondre Campbell out there on Sunday, who knows? Preston Smith going to line up on Justin Jefferson? <laughs> is that what we're going to do now with no Jair? We've seen Preston on who? Devontae Adams? Who is the other guy? On Mike Evans or on Chris Godwin? Welcome to Smith Island, Justin Jefferson. <laughs> Check-in time, 11 a.m. Check-out time, never. Whatever, 7 o'clock p.m. Check-out time, never. That's probably going to happen. Get yourself ready. Steal yourself for that mentally now that we're going to see Preston Smith lined up one-on-one with Justin Jefferson at some point. But Jaron Hall is going to be the starter on Sunday. The line is down to one. It opened as Vikings minus two and a half. You wonder if that's just the call to the rookie quarterback. Is Nick Mullins worth a point and a half? Feels like that'd be a lot. The line, though, is down to one. New Year's Eve night, which I love. I love that because it gives you the built-in something to do. Instead of trying to figure out, oh, what are you guys doing? Are you going to go out? Are you going to get dinner? And there's a million people out to dinner. Well, do we want to do that? Do we have to get a reservation? This place has all you can eat, all you can drink. But do we even want to stay out past 9 o'clock? Do we just want to order Chinese and fall asleep by 8 o'clock? You know, instead of doing all of that, this is the built-in thing to do. All the Packer game's on. Great. You watch that at 7 o'clock. You eat a bunch of crappy food. By the time it ends, it's 1030. You're a half an hour away from East Coast New Year. Ball drops. Bingo, bango. You're in bed after that. Scrolling Packer Twitter, and you're either doing it in a celebratory fashion or you're doing it because you're angry about the loss. It is the perfect New Year's Eve activity for this stage in my life. But it is a one-point spread heading into Sunday night. If the Packers win, they will be up over 60% chance to make the playoffs. If they lose, it is the Lloyd Christmas 1% chance or less. So essentially, this is a de facto playoff game coming up on New Year's Eve. By the way, we did some Packer trivia this morning talking about Packer memories. New Year's Eve 1994 in a wild card game against the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions. The Packers, so how many years ago? 29 years ago today, held Barry Sanders to minus one yard rushing. That was our trivia question. What did they hold Barry Sanders to rushing yards that day? And I gave the 1-0 minus one as the options. 
Of course, minus one yard rushing for Barry Sanders in a playoff game at Lambeau Field 29 years ago today. New Year's Eve at Lambeau Field. Must have been an afternoon game. Remember when we had a defense? They won that game 16-12. to Remember when we had a defense and you go Barry Sanders to one yard below? Or one or minus one yard on the day? Wow, what a time to be alive that was. Remember? Remember? Pepperidge Farm remembers. That was 29 years ago today. New Year's Eve matchup in Minnesota, 7:20 kickoff on Sunday night. Now, a few other things that we want to happen on Sunday, and maybe we'll incorporate some of these into picks at the end of the podcast. I do think we need the Falcons to lose. I've seen so many different scenarios for the Packers where they talk about we need the Rams to lose, we need the Seahawks to lose, we need this to happen. I haven't seen any of them where we need the Falcons to lose, but I'm pretty sure we need the Falcons to lose. We are tied with them at seven and eight. They have the head the head to head tiebreaker with the head to head win in week two. We, I think, need Atlanta to lose in Chicago. That's a noon kickoff on Sunday. We could use the Rams to lose in New York, even though the Rams are trending way up with the combo at wide receiver and Stafford looking healthy and the young running back. The defense seems to be clicking again. They are in New York taking on the Giants. They are six-point favorites. However, it is not Tommy DeVito anymore. He got benched after being player of the week two weeks ago. He's since been benched. It is Tyrod Taylor, who is a competent NFL quarterback. Tyrod Taylor would shred this Packer defense. That's what I was worried about going all the way back to however many podcasts ago, going into that Giants game, that start of the five-game run of what will make or break the playoff chances for the Packers. That was the game, or that was the dynamic I was worried about. When they announced Tommy DeVito was going to be the starter, I thought, whew, we got, we dodged one there. Because Tyrod Taylor has a history of doing well in the NFL. We don't want to face that. We want to face Tommy DeVito, and then Tommy DeVito tore him up anyway. Tyrod Taylor, though, is a bit of an X factor in that game. Can he get that offense going? We could sure use it. Rams at the Giants, that's also a noon kickoff. We have twelve or we have ten noon kickoff games on Sunday. So stupid and three late games. I don't get it. The other game we've got our eye on is the Seahawks at home against Pittsburgh. That is one of the few late games, three o'clock games. Now that one I could see going our way. Pittsburgh is still fighting for a playoff spot. They are 8-7. and seven. Seahawks are 8-7. and seven. They've made the move now to Mason Rudolph. Rudolph had some success a few years ago. Then he got knocked all the way down to third string. He makes that start against Cincinnati heading into Christmas weekend. He looks fantastic to the point where you wonder how in the world was Mitch Trubisky above this guy on the depth chart. He might be even better than Kenny Pickett. How was he third on that depth chart? That gives Pittsburgh an extra element offensively. We know their defense is good, and you've got two pretty evenly matched teams there. If I had to guess one thing to go our way, if if the Packers do get a win, that's number one. They don't win, it doesn't matter anyway. I would guess, though, that would be the one that we may get help from if you have Pittsburgh beat Seattle in Seattle. That'll be a 3:05 kickoff on Sunday. Just some games to watch out for. Atlanta at Chicago, Rams in New York, and Pittsburgh on the road in Seattle. Let's talk real briefly about the Badger Bowl game. I, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm in this bat, in this bowl pool, which I thank the Lord for. I am not betting on any of these games individually because I'm in this pool where the best record or the most points, you put confidence points, and you make a pick for every bowl game. You put confidence points on them, and then whoever has the most points at the end wins the pot. $100 buy-in. I think we've got 10 guys in it. That has been enough to satiate my gambling appetite to where I'm not betting on all of these individual bowl games. What I found, though, is I'm making my picks and putting confidence points on them. The number one thing that you want to read about heading into these games are 
how has the transfer portal hit these teams? Because you can look at the records, and some teams are ranked in the top 25 playing teams that are not ranked in the top 25, and you think, oh, the top 25 team's probably going to win that game, right? There's a reason they're in the top 25, and there's a reason the other team is not. And that may be true for whatever happened four weeks ago. What you've got to find out is what are the injuries look like, transfer portal, guys coming in, guys going out, guys going to the draft that aren't going to play, that played a key role on those teams. That's what you have to find out in these games. The Badgers are not going to have to deal with Jaden Daniels, who just won the Heisman Trophy. We do know Tanner Mordecai is playing. Braylon Allen is not playing. It's hard to make heads or tails of this. I think I would put a bet on, and I probably will, the Badgers to cover. I might buy a half a point just so if they lose by 10, they would still cover. This is one of those games, though. I can't believe the Badgers are playing on a New Year's Day game. It's 7-5. and five. They get the two wins to end the year. Now you take on the number 13 team in the country, but how many guys that were a part of that that were fighting for maybe an SEC title game for LSU, how many of those guys are sticking around? I don't know the answer to that. All I, re- all I know is the Heisman Trophy winner, Jaden Daniels, is not playing in this game. This is a game where if we lost 45 nothing, I'd say, yeah, probably against a top-tier SEC team. Sure. If this is a game the Badgers somehow won 21 to 17, I would say, okay, that's fine. This would be a nice way to end what was a disappointing year. There's no two ways about that, but you win that trophy game against Nebraska, you get the axe back, you get a New Year's Day bowl, and regardless of who the players are on the field, if you go out there on a New Year's Day game and you beat the number 13 team in the country, an SEC team, that's some nice momentum heading into the offseason to get you to eight wins on the year. That is an 11 a.m. kickoff coming up on New Year's Day on Monday. I think it is on ESPN. But, yeah, there have already been a ton of bowls. There's a bunch of bowls going on as we speak. Did you see last night? I've got to get you this audio. <laughs> last night, the Pop-Tart Bowl. I don't even know who was playing in this game. Was it the NC State-Kansas State game? This Pop-Tart mascot took over Twitter. This mascot was a menace. This This mascot was an agent of chaos during this game. He was in the stands. He was slapping the referee butts during the commercial timeouts. This Pop-Tart mascot was everywhere. And as we headed into this game, they were billing it during the game as an edible mascot. Like this mascot, you can eat this, is actually made of real Pop-Tart. I don't think that that's true. However, at the end of the game, as the teams were celebrating, they brought a gigantic toaster onto the field and they lowered the mascot, the, the human mascot toast Pop-Tart into the toaster. And at the bottom of it came out an actual gigantic Pop-Tart that the players on the winning team then went and ripped pieces off and were eating. It was wild. But the broadcast where they're talking about the Pop-Tart's eventual the whole mascot, he came out of a toaster, a giant toaster, minutes before kickoff. Can you really put the frosted ones in a toaster, though? Well, here's the sad part of the story. After the game, he will be devoured. He will die. (laughs) And he will be his own last meal. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, that is amazing. And the trophy is a football trophy with gold Pop-Tarts around the base of it. And then the top of the trophy has, like, two Pop-Tart toaster oven carts on there where you can just pop them in. It's an amazing trophy, too. That one, that Pop-Tart Bowl really took over social media yesterday. It was like the Duke's Mayo Bowl, which also was big this weekend, where they, I forget who won that bowl, but they doused him in just this gigantic vat of Duke's Mayo. Remember, though, when the Badgers won that, that was kind of a subplot, too. The mascot, and were they going to pour a bunch of mayo all over Paul Chris in that game? 
That's what the Pop-Tart Bowl was in 2023, what the Duke Mayo Bowl was back in 2020. By the way, I've purchased Duke's Mayo now many, many times since that Duke's Mayo Bowl, the Badgers won. So they've probably gotten about 150 bucks out of me since then because that's the mayo we go to now. It's a very good mayo. But the Pop-Tart Bowl, that was hilarious. And yes, by the way, for that broadcaster, you do put the frosted ones in the toaster. Come on. Also, the only Pop-Tart that matters is the cinnamon Pop-Tart. That's it. I've never tried it. We've had a few different Pop-Tart discussions on the air on the B93 Morning Show because we tackle the hard-hitting subjects on that morning show. I have had several people on the text line tell me that I should eat my brown sugar, cinnamon, whatever they are. The You know the, to- you know the Pop-Tart I'm talking about. You toast it, and then on the not-frosted side, they wanted me to put butter, to spread some butter on that side of it just to add that extra bit of health <laughs> to the Pop-Tart. I have not tried it as of yet. They swear by it, though. The text line unanimously was behind toasting the brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tart and then putting butter on the unfrosted side of it. I guess you may as well. May as well go all in with it. It was quite a scene, though, with the edible mascot at the Pop-Tart Bowl yesterday. Meanwhile, the college football playoff will be on Monday on New Year's Day. It has been on New Year's Eve in the past, but because of the NFL schedule on Sunday, it's going to be on New Year's Day. I think I've got a feel for this. I think I'm going to end up doing a two-team teaser on this, honestly, because they're both pretty tight spreads. You've got number one Michigan taking on number four Alabama, which is the better game. I know Florida State's going to be upset. Florida State is, by the way, I'm not going to put this in my official picks. Florida State-Georgia, which is kind of the consolation game, that will be on Saturday at 3 o'clock. That's the Orange Bowl, number five, unbeaten Florida State, number six, Georgia, 12-1, and one, the reigning two-time national champs who just lost their first game in two-plus years. I think I may have to put some money on Florida State in that game. Georgia is favored by 20 points, and there's no doubt, especially without Florida State's Heisman quarterback, which is the reason they did not get into the college football playoff, if he were healthy, Florida State would be taking on Michigan and not Alabama, I would think. I think the SEC does get iced out if Florida State has their quarterback that they had all year going into the college football playoff. I think Florida State, right, they desperately want to make a statement in this game. They want to win. They want to go 14-0, and then they have an even bigger hill to die on at the end of this where whatever team it is that wins the national championship, Florida State can say, but here we are sitting at 14-0. and They're 20-point underdogs. The motivation levels in that game, Georgia coming off of back-to-back national championship games and now not even making the college football playoff, I would think their motivation is down, and I do think they have several players going to the draft that aren't going to play in this game. Meanwhile, you've got Florida State with this bone to pick with the college football selection committee, the playoff selection committee. They want more than anything to win this game, to go 14-0 and to stake claim to this national title, this unofficial national title. I think I've got to throw some money on Florida State plus 20. You're giving me 20 points, and you've got those two very different motivation levels. Anyway, Michigan is a two-point favorite against Alabama. I like Michigan to win. In the two-team tees I want to lay down, though, that would push Alabama to plus 8.5. That's a lot of points for an Alabama team. And then the other half of the teaser I want to do is Washington, because I think Washington's going to win. I think Washington beats Texas, Michigan beats Alabama, and I've got Washington beating Michigan in the national title game. Washington is a three-and-a-half-point underdog to Texas, despite being unbeaten, and despite having beaten Oregon twice this year now, the Washington Huskies. I think because of that, you do a two-team tease where you get Alabama at plus eight-and-a-half, and you get Washington then at almost plus ten. That's a two-team tease I might explore. 
Those are my picks, though. I've got Michigan taking on Washington, the national title game, and I've got Washington winning that game to become the national champions right before they join the Big Ten. Do the Badgers have to play them right away next year? This schedule next year is an utter, utter disaster. It's not on the ESPN yet. 2024 Badger football schedule. I think they have... They have Alabama non-conference. They've got USC conference. I think they've got Oregon and Washington conference. Do they have Ohio State too? It is going to be tough. They've got Alabama at home. Then they go to USC. They've got Oregon at home. They don't have Washington. Okay, so they've got Oregon. Oh, they don't have Ohio State. They've got Oregon, USC, and Alabama on the schedule next year. And then at some point, they will see Washington as a Big Ten team. I've got Washington over Michigan, a Big Ten championship preview. Washington over Michigan in the national championship game. Let's talk about the Bucks on the floor real quick, and then I want to wrap up on Herb Cole before we make some picks. They get the win on Wednesday. It was kind of a Cadillac win. Brooklyn was not playing their starters. Brooklyn's a 500 team. I'm not sure why they were resting their guys. I don't know what the narrative was on their side going into that game. The Bucs were struggling a bit. They were up by eight entering the fourth quarter, and then they flipped the switch and blew right past them. Chris Middleton continues to look better and better every game. We talked about that on Tuesday. That continues to be a part of the storyline in the last week or two for me as it relates to the Bucs. We're looking more and more at 2021 Middleton. He had 27 points on Wednesday. Again, in the month of December, shooting over 50% from the field, over 40% from beyond the arc, and over 90% at the line. Remember, that was that year. I think it was the title year, maybe the year before that. It might have been the year heading into the bubble and the pandemic where he was threatening to become one of the few players in NBA history to have a 50-40-90 season, 50% from the field, 40% from beyond the arc, 90% at the free throw line. I want to say he fell percentage points off of 50% from the field. I think he was 49.6 or 49.5. That's the Middleton we're seeing more and more of, though. Like we talked about on Tuesday, I'm not sure his defense is ever going to get back to where it was three or four years ago. That's not a reasonable expectation for a player who's 32 or 33 years old and has now suffered through several leg injuries, most recently a knee injury. He's never going to have that lateral quickness again. I just wouldn't bank on it. I just wouldn't put that as a part of something I'm waiting for. The offense, though, is coming back, and his communication or unspoken bond with Giannis and how long they played together – it is really something to watch right now. How many alley-oops on Wednesday? I think five different alley-oops. Their connection to each other were just a look. It's like the Rodgers-Devontae Adams connection. Were just a look, and Devontae knew exactly the route to run or the hot route or the audible to run because Rodgers saw something in the defense. That's the unspoken bond that Giannis and Middleton have because they played now for how long? 11 years together. That's been a lot of fun to watch recently, and they've been letting Middleton run the point when he's been out there. Saw a lot of that on Wednesday. Dame had a really bad game on Wednesday. Kind of looked like he was just getting some light cardio in. I don't know. Dame has games like that. I don't know. I mean, we've never seen him play. I've only known of Dame as a Hall of Fame player, a top 50 player. You see the highlights of his big threes late, and when Portland would be in the playoffs, you'd see highlights there. I wasn't watching a lot of Portland Trailblazers games, those 9 p.m. tip times on TNT once in a while. To say that I've maybe seen before this year a total of 10 complete Dame games in my life would probably be an oversell. This might just be a part of the Dame experience. I know there's certain games, and hey, uh, the personal stuff you don't want to get into too much. We know he is going through a divorce. We know he is not seeing his kids as regularly as he wants to. He's in a new environment with a new team. 
that could all be playing into maybe some of the body language stuff and some of the games where it kind of looks like he's not fully into it. We kind of saw that a little bit on Wednesday. There could be a lot of stuff going on there, though. And he's a veteran, and it's December in the NBA. I expect that he will be able to flip the switch. And we've seen him flip that switch in games already this year. I would expect we're going to see him ramp things up. We're not going to see a lot of those kind of games once we get to March and April in the playoffs in late April and May. But he was a quiet one on Wednesday. With the win, the Bucks get to 23-8 and on the year. They are in Cleveland tonight. Cleveland, a playoff team last year. They're 17-14 and coming into tonight. And a team that has some length on the interior defensively. And that has given Giannis problems in the past. We saw that last year. It'll be, what is the tip time tonight? I think this is the last of the four-game road trip here for the Bucks. Then they will get back home. They play at 6.30 tonight. They play, yeah, 6.30 on NBA TV or Bally Sports if you can get the app to work. Bucks are six-and-a-half-point favorites entering play tonight, and then they play again on New Year's Day. We'll be recapping it on Tuesday. This is the first Pacer rematch since the Donnybrook at the end of the game ball where Giannis scored 64. That'll be on Monday at Fiserv. Then they're right to Indiana on Wednesday. That back-to-back is on the way. See, that in-season tournament and the rivalry it created, it's given me increased interest in a game that I would always be interested in a Bucks game. But it's more. It's more now with this Indiana rivalry, that matchup on Monday, and then the subsequent matchup in Indiana on Wednesday next week. Let's talk about Herb Cole real quick. An icon. Passed away. 88 years old. I'm not going to pretend to know a lot of what he did in the political spectrum. He is a legend in Wisconsin sports. Not just for the Bucks. We're going to talk about that in a second. Just a fun fact, if you didn't know, and I learned this reading the Bud Sealing book that he released however many years ago, three or four years ago, kind of chronicling his life. What do they call those? Biographies? Autobiographies? Did you know, fun fact, did you know that Herb Cole and Bud Selig were college roommates in Madison? How is that possible that two of the biggest figureheads in Wisconsin sports grew up together, grew up in the state together, and were roommates in college when Bud Selig in his late 20s was fighting to bring baseball back to Milwaukee? And he started whatever the corporation was, Milwaukee Brewer Baseball Corporation, Right after the Braves left, he started that corporation, that LLC, and his intent was to bring a team to Milwaukee, but his intent was also to keep professional baseball in Milwaukee to some extent so that they didn't lose it, so that there was something happening at County Stadium. A part of that was getting the White Sox to agree to play 10 games a year at County Stadium, things like that, just to keep baseball in the forefront. And then when a team became available, like it did with Seattle in 1969, that they would be top of mind then as the next location for an expansion team. Herb Cole sort of operating in the shadows there with his friend, Bud Selig, Alan, some call him, Alan Selig. Herb was a big part of that, too, in terms of marketing, in terms of some money he threw that way. Herb Cole is at least, if you wanted to put a percentage on it about why we enjoy baseball to this day in Milwaukee, Bud Selig is 80%, 85%, 90%. But I would put Herb Cole at a good 5 to 10 maybe, at least 5%, a part of the reason why we do have baseball back in Milwaukee after the Braves left. That's maybe an unknown part of the storyline and the life of Herb Cole. He was a fairly sizable part of helping Bud Selig bring baseball back to Milwaukee. And the fact that they were college roommates, when I read that in Bud Selig's book, I thought, what? How is that possible? And then you get to the Bucks. He bought the Bucks in the mid-'80s. He was a part of the Bradley Center. I know that was a donated facility, but making sure the Bucks stayed in Milwaukee when he purchased them. And he was just, to me, 
we could have a debate, and I've said many times he was a great owner, a terrible GM. There was a part of Herb Cole that kind of got into player movement and wanting to draft a certain guy or trade for a certain guy, and those things didn't work out, whatever. There's a little Jerry Jones there to him, a little bit. Not to that extent, but a little bit. A little meddlesome at times. He was the perfect custodian, though, for a professional team. Sometimes you get owners that own a sports franchise, and it's this is mine. This is mine. This property is mine. This is a commercial property. I can make money off of this. This is me living out my dream. I own this. This is my thing. Herb was never like that. Herb Cole, while he owned the team, he always treated that team as if it was the fans because the fans are the, are the people that love the team that live and die with the wins and losses, that form bonds with family members or friends or have memories of championship parades or playoff runs or being at a certain game when a certain thing happened. He was very respectful of that part of being a sports owner. It never felt like Herb Cole was saying, this is mine. The Milwaukee Bucks are mine. He always was the custodian. The Bucks belong to Milwaukee. The Bucks belong to the fans, the diehard fans, the casual fans of the Bucks, all of the fans of the Milwaukee Bucks. That's who this franchise belongs to. He always took that kind of approach, even though he became, at times, a little meddlesome with the players. And he also not only kept the Bucks in Milwaukee when he bought them, when he sold them, he kept them in Milwaukee. It is not a well-kept secret that when he was trying to get out of the ownership seat and sell the team, the team was in a bad situation financially. They were in a bad situation in terms of arena. They were in a bad situation in terms of media market. You had Seattle chomping at the bit like the Brewers were, or like the Milwaukee Baseball Corporation was in 1969, waiting for a team to, to sell and have a chance to get back into that arena. That's what Seattle was trying to do. Steve Ballmer, who made billions and billions and billions of dollars with Microsoft and who would eventually buy the L.A. Clippers, at that time, he was shopping for a team and Herb Cole was selling. Herb had, I think, an evaluation of around 700-ish million on the bucks. And apparently, Ballmer called Herb Cole and said, I'm going to give you a billion dollars for this franchise. I will offer you $1 billion for a team that's worth six to $700 million. But I'm going to move them to Seattle. And that's not a secret. That that was the plan. Steve Ballmer wanted to buy this team for a billion dollars over market value, move them to Seattle, and move them out of Milwaukee. And Herb Cole, knowing that part of it, said no. And he sold it to Lazarine Edens for, what, $600 million? And he had it in a spot where he knew that the owners were going to keep the team in Milwaukee. So he could have made a lot more money selling the team to a person who would have taken the team from the fans in Milwaukee, but he did not. You know who would have? Craig Council. <laughs> That's Herb Cole. Herb Cole is who we thought Craig Council was. Craig Council would have sold his team down the river, apparently, from what we've learned about Craig Council. He would have sold it for to the highest bidder, not Herb Cole. Herb Cole could have made $400 million more dollars or whatever, $300 million more dollars, and the team could have left, and what did he really care at that point in his life? And he didn't do it that way. He found a different ownership group. He made less money. He made sure there was a guarantee to keep that team in Milwaukee. And then he also donated $100 million to the building of Pfizer Forum. And that's a huge layer to it, too. Now, look, he's worth so much money, you could say, oh, it's a drop in a hat. $100 million is a lot of money. There's some public money there, too. There was some money put in by Lazarine Edens. That was also a part of the stipulations for the purchase that they had to put money in for a new arena to make sure this team was going to be here for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And even if you're not a sports fan, which I don't think you've listened to 50 minutes of this podcast if you're not, but even if you're not a sports fan, 
Pfizer reform has changed the game in Milwaukee and in the state in terms of the quality of entertainment that can be brought in. We've seen Elton John. I mean, all the even the, I know people don't love the not everybody loves the Jonas Brothers. You know, artists like that, top tier artists, were not going to come to the Bradley Center anymore. And because they got this new arena and the acoustics are beautiful in that arena, some would say they're better for concerts than they are for actual Bucks games. That's another layer to it as well. Making sure Milwaukee, the Bucks stayed in Milwaukee, and they got a new arena, but that arena has lended itself to several other projects outside of just Bucks basketball. They should build a statue for Herb Cole in front of Pfizer for him. I've heard that they have offered that to him, or they did offer it to him, and he did not want that. Now that he's gone, though, I think they should. I really do. I think they should do something to honor him at the front of Pfizer for him, even if it's just a plaque. I mean, something that will draw attention to how big of an impact this man had on the Wisconsin sports scene in general and specifically on the Milwaukee Bucks. Because this whole era, the Giannis era, the Pfizer Forum era, the Deer District, the 600,000 people that were all celebrating the championship, none of that happens without Herb Cole. Passed away at 88 years old this week, a true icon of the Wisconsin sports scene. All right, let's make some picks. We're going to burn through these. We went, I said on Tuesday, we went 0-4. It was bound to happen. We had not had a winless week all year. We are 46-33-5. 13 units up. I've got three picks. I'm going to take Dallas minus 5.5 at home against Detroit. That's the primetime game on Saturday. We have another weekend where we have a lot of games spread out over three or four days. I will take the Cowboys at home. They are unbeaten at home. They have lost two games in a row on the road, two tight games. I think Detroit's going to be a tad hungover, a smidge hungover from their NFC North Division title winning game. I will take Dallas minus five and a half in Jerry World on Saturday night. This next one is a little bit of a hedge for me. You know we've been over. We have the New Orleans Saints future to win the NFC South. If they win their final two games, which are against Tampa, who they're a game behind right now, and then they end the year against Atlanta, who they are tied with right now, If New Orleans wins those last two games, I'm pretty sure they win the division and that would cash that ticket. The Buccaneers are on a major upward trend right now with Baker and that offense. And this is kind of a hedge. I'm going to bet on the Bucs minus two and a half. If the Bucs win, that will then ease the loss a bit of the NFC uh, NFC South future bet that I will not win if the Buccaneers win. So this is kind of a mini hedge. I will take the Bucs minus two and a half at home. They already beat the Saints soundly in New Orleans. I will take Tampa at home by a field goal, minus two and a half against the Saints. And I'm going to take Pittsburgh to cover. We are hoping they win. We need them to win in Seattle. That would really help the Packers out. Packers have to help themselves out too. Steelers are plus three and a half. I get the half-point hook on a three-point game. Steeler defense is good. Seahawks aren't blowing anybody out, at least heading into this weekend. I will take Pittsburgh plus three and a half on the road in Seattle. Buccaneers minus two and a half at home against New Orleans and Dallas minus five and a half at home against Detroit. That'll do it for us here. Have a happy, safe new year, and hopefully we're coming back with a Victory Tuesday podcast on Tuesday morning. We'll chat with you then.